Our text this morning is again from the book of Hebrews as we continue on in this great doctrinal discussion. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11 is where we're going to be beginning this morning. Hebrews 9, 11. You'll find that on page 1201 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. So please turn there. As we consider that text, there is a saying that I think is emblematic of our lives, both our physical lives as well as our spiritual lives, and it is also true of our text today. That saying is that sometimes you have to abandon that which is good in order to receive that which is best. The saying often comes true when we're faced with choices in our lives, when there are two options that we need to consider which road we're going to pursue. One option can seem good and perhaps may well be good as we begin to endeavor into it, but the other will clearly show itself to be best. And these contrasts reveal that choice, and our title reflects the contrast of those choices. I've titled our message for this morning, The Contrasts of Blood. The Contrasts of Blood. Hebrews 9, 11 is our text. I'm going to read through it to begin with, and then we'll dive in. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The contrasts of blood. Our title reflects the concept of the entire main section of Hebrews. That is the superiority of Jesus Christ over the high priesthood. We're now rolling full steam ahead and we're arising ever more towards the pinnacle of the proclamation and final assessment of Jesus' superiority over the Jewish high priesthood. It was a vital consideration for the audience of this book because they were the Jewish Christians. And ongoing at this time was the sacrificial system. The temple was still active in Jerusalem. And the Jews are still being called back to another form of worship. And they are here being told that they must reject that old system in order to fully understand the supremacy of Jesus Christ. His supremacy has been presented through six contrasts, or will be, through the main portion of this book. We've already seen the contrast of ministries, wherein the earthly ministry of the high priest was compared with the heavenly and far superior ministry of Christ. We have seen the comparison of the covenants, 
where the earthly Mosaic covenant was compared with the coming new covenant. And we saw the weaknesses that existed in that old covenant system because it was administered by priests that were men that were sinful and flawed. And that alongside of the new covenant ministry presented by Jesus Christ in which there was no sin and in whom there was no flaw was far superior to that of the old covenant. The third parallel contrast we saw was this idea of the tabernacles and the old tent that was in the wilderness. And although it looked like just kind of a large tent from the outside, it had great glory that was included in it. And the, the accoutrements and the fixtures of that tabernacle were described to us in detail and were beautiful to behold. But these fell far short of the heavenly tabernacle which Christ entered. And there was indeed no true comparison. There, there could have been throughout each of these three contrasts the, the undeniable reality of choice that came up. There were options in each one. And yet with each option there became a higher level of their inability to choose the weaker option. The undeniable reality really was that Jesus Christ was so far superior that although there was some consideration of the original ministry of the priests, that Jesus was extremely above and beyond, and it accelerated with each one. Now the fourth comparison we come to is the contrast of the blood. This one is longer than the prior. It goes all the way through the rest of the ninth chapter. So today's text is an introduction to this topic of the contrast of the blood. Let's begin by going to our first point, which I've titled, The Contrast of Presentations. The Contrast of Presentations in verses 11 to 12. Now, last week, if you're saying, didn't we look at verses 11 to 12? We indeed did. But there are two subjects that are inherent in this, and we'll see how those transition this morning. We were considering the previous subject, that of the tabernacle. But along with the conclusion of that subject, that is, the conclusion of the contrast of the two tabernacles, was the introduction to this new subject, the contrast of the blood. And, and that is what we've seen, that intricate style of the writer of Hebrews has continually been evidenced to us, where we've seen him weave into a former subject that which is coming and then move smoothly through and on to the next discussion. Verse 11 began by discussing Christ, and, and we elaborated on the significant change from the previous verses as we went through all of those from verses 6 through 10, and they reflected on the earthly tabernacle. And then we hit verse 11, and it was but Christ. And there was this huge exaltation that occurred, this magnificent, emphatic introduction. And it used the name of his office, Christ, versus his earthly name, Jesus, because it is discussing his role. Christ is not his surname. It is his title. It is his role as Messiah. So that role is immediately reintroduced to us with Jesus as high priest in verse 11. And so that drew us back to consider the role of the high priest. And 
And what was their role? I mean, we know that there was the priesthood that took care of all of the daily functions of the tabernacle, but what was the role of the high priest? Really, it was singular, and it was once a year, and it was to carry the blood of the sacrifices into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. So Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, verse 11 tells us. And as we discussed, these good things were the future promises to Israel, those which are proclaimed over and over again through the prophets. And we saw that Christ entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle. And we discussed last week that this was contrasting the earthly tabernacle to the heavenly one. And it confirmed that this entrance of Jesus's was through the heavenly tabernacle. That is one that, the one that is greater and more perfect. This was the effective conclusion to the comparison of the two tabernacles. But a key word in verse 12 carries all the way through today's text. And that key word is the word through. Through. He entered through. The word through describes the means by which Christ entered. We could say it was the path or the mode. It was the mechanism of his earthly entry. Now we're very familiar with the same usage. We could make a statement like Mr. Jones came through the door. So it is the path by which was followed. Only this is a much more elaborate discussion. And the meaning of this word through must be carefully considered because it carries the impact of what Christ truly did and the way in which he did it. In our text, the word through is used to express our first point, the contrast of presentations. And that contrast begins with through a greater and more perfect tabernacle. And immediately we see that contrast of the entrance of what he went through in the way in which he did not go through. The negative statements, the not made with hands, the not of this creation. That is, he did not enter through a tabernacle made with hands. He did not enter a tabernacle of this creation. Then that third negative begins in verse 12 in that first contrast, namely not through the blood of goats and calves. This reference is back to the book of Leviticus, which I've encouraged you a few times to take time and read and refresh yourself on. It's usually not the first book we open to in the Bible. Maybe not what we see as the most exciting place to turn, but a phenomenal reference for us. And Leviticus 16 is the text that discusses this element of the blood of goats and of bulls, or blood of goats and calves, rather. We note two things here that are of great import regarding the blood of goats and calves. First, the order of the animals is reversed from the Leviticus text. This is not accidental. There are no accidents in the scripture. So we have to read carefully and note what's going on in these nuances. Ask why is it reversed? Well, the answer is goats are proclaimed first because the goat is that which was offered for the sin of the people. If we go back to Leviticus 16, we will see that the high priest first offered a bull. And actually the text says a bullock. It was a yearling. 
And that bull was offered for the sins of the priest. The second offering was the goat, and that is what was offered for the sins of the people. So as we consider these two elements, now we see this reverse. And the goat is brought forward first because it is for the sin of the people. And in like manner, the contrast of presentations is between the high priest's offering for the people and Jesus' offering for the people. So that's why the order has been turned around. So there's a careful parallel that the author's setting up for us. Second, we notice that the reference is to calves, specifically to yearlings. Now, we know that that is a calf that is a newborn within its first year of life. This distinction becomes more important as we get to our second point. So keep that idea that a calf is mentioned here, meaning a one-year-old bull or one-year-old cow. But the contrast of presentation is that Christ did not enter through the blood of goats and calves. The next phrase of verse 13 sets up that contrast for us where it says, or verse 12 rather, where it says, he entered the holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption, and it said just before that, through his own blood. The contrast of presentations is the way in which Christ entered and the way the earthly high priest entered, specifically the contrast of the blood. Jesus entered through or by means of his own blood. The, the entry accomplished through his own blood, which was shed on Calvary, that horrific price that was paid on the cross that allowed him to bring atonement for all people. It's an incredible comparison of Jesus' blood versus the blood of the animal sacrifices. And in this way, Jesus entered the holy place, that is, through his blood. It was the path, it was the door, it was what was required for his entry. The same Greek phrase for holy place is used in Hebrews 8 too, confirming that we're talking about Jesus' entry into the heavenly sanctuary, the, the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Back from verse 11. And this he did once for all. Now, as we consider that, the point of the once for all is that there was no repeat necessary. Never again would a sacrifice be needed for sin. The phrase once for all is frequent and important as we saw in Hebrews, but most important in Hebrews 7.27. And in Hebrews 7.27, it says, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. There was this ongoing, elaborate, sacrificial system that was daily and then the yearly day of atonement. But Christ's sacrifice was final. It was once and for all. It never needed to re be repeated again. This is exactly what we see when we hear the Lord's last words from the cross at Calvary in John 19 and verse 30, where he cries out, where he screams out, not in a weak voice as one who has gone through all he has and can barely speak, but he screams out, it is finished. 
his last breath taken and he yielded up his spirit. His life was not taken from him, but he gave it. The final element of this contrast is in the last words of verse 12. Having obtained eternal redemption. The word redemption here can be translated as delivered or even ransomed. We've been eternally ransomed as a result of the shed blood of Christ. Christ's shed blood has, has ransomed us back from the wrath of God, beloved. We are deserving of God's wrath in our sins. And it is not like we could receive that wrath and have our sins covered and paid for and then move on. No, one sin makes us eternally condemned and deserving of an eternal condemnation and reception of that wrath. That is what from which we have been ransomed. His shed blood ransomed us back from the wrath which we deserve in God. In this way, he paid the penalty for our sins, and he did so once for all, as we just saw. It is also a, a payment that is paid in full. There is no more need. That's why it is once for all. By the way, that, that theme of paid in full, that is the theme of the book of Romans. Romans is all about this redemption, which is paid in full by Christ. His ransom also satisfied the justice and righteous anger and indignation of God over our sins. God couldn't simply say, okay, I'm just going to forget about their sins because Jesus has died. No, there had to be a point for point, part for part payment for each sin. It wasn't like most of the sins of the redeemed were laid upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ at the cross. All of the sins for all of the redeemed of all time were born upon his shoulders at Calvary. That was the righteous anger of God which had to be propitiated. That indignation of God over our sins. And we consider how big of an effect our sins have. This is also a picture of the glorious love of the Trinity as each participate in this emancipation of mankind as we are enslaved in our sin. This was the problem with the old system. There was never a full redemption. There was never a full cleansing of the conscious because the moment that the sacrifice was offered, immediately the sin began to build again. And you could never be free from it. The one who truly understood the offense against God and the punishment deserved for the sin recognized that instantly that sin began to mount again and there was no cleansing of the conscience. And through his blood, the second Adam set right that which was violated for all time by the first Adam. Romans 5, 14 and forward is a beautiful presentation of that truth. Romans 5, 14. Each of these paint a proper perspective of the penal substitution by which Christ's blood atoned and removed the sins of us, his children. And it is an incredible consideration. It is the most boggling consideration that ever we will know on this earth. Beloved, this is a most clear-cut case of abandoning that which is good. Good 
to receive that which is best. If this was the case with the tabernacle, it is overwhelmingly so with the contrast of the blood. There was no other options for these first century believers. And beloved, there is, there is no other option today. The contrast of presentations reveals the entry of the high priest with the blood of animals versus Christ's entry as high priest with his own blood, through his own blood. And it may be a contrast of presentation, but there is no need to consider the options. It is only by Jesus' blood and righteousness that we are cleansed. It is our only option. Remember the rich young ruler considering these options? Jesus told him after he proclaimed that he was keeping all of the law, Jesus said, then take all you have and sell it. And what happened to him? You see, he went away dejected. Why? Because he owned much. He could not pass up the good to receive the best. There were two contrasting ways for this man. The path through a life of wealth and apparent relative ease or the path to follow Christ. He couldn't have both. He had to choose between that which was good and that which was best. What a consideration to those to whom much has been given. It wasn't just the contrast of presentations. Another contrast arises in our second point, and it is the contrast of purifications. The contrast of purifications in verses 13 and 14. Look at verse 13 with me, if you would. Hebrews 9 and 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Our considerations of good versus best continue, as also does the contrast of the blood. But now, it isn't the presentation of the blood, which we just saw, that of the presentation of the blood of goats and bulls versus Christ. Now it is the effect of the blood. The contrast of purification, the verse begins, for if the blood. The contrast is set up for us in this if statement. If this is true, then something else is coming that we expect will likely be true also. That is the contrast that we're seeing. The underlying idea being that something else is going on, and we'll get to that something else in just a minute. By the way, this is also setting up our contrast of good and best. Verse 13 goes on to address the blood of goats and bulls, and now another element is added with the ashes of a heifer. It's similar to verse 12, but it's not the same, is it? Not only is there an addition, but there's something else here going on. It's incredible that as significant as this is, most commentators look right beyond this. I am so thankful for John Owen and his 11-volume work that brings the point and the import of this to the surface. You see, verse 12 was explicitly speaking of the Day of Atonement. It was elaborating and talking about the once-a-year sacrifice of 
bulls and goats, which again we've seen reversed because the focus is the sacrifice for the people, the goats. And now we see that there is that reversed order again. We begin with the same term for goats. Interesting that the animal chosen for this offering of the people, offering of a goat for those who in their sins of stubbornness are often as goats. And then we go to bulls. Notice, not calves any longer. No longer yearlings. The meaning of this is in harmony with the next phrase, the ashes of a heifer. Now, we've spoken of the ashes of a heifer before. It comes from Numbers 19. That was the special preparation of the red heifer, wherein this unique one-year-old cow was taken and was sacrificed in a very unique way, and the ashes were mixed with water, and this became the unique cleansing for a couple of major elements, the first being that of touching a dead body. You remember in the Jewish system, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean. You had to be removed from the camp. It was through the red heifer ashes mixed with water being sprinkled on you that you were cleansed. Also, and much more significantly, for the infection of leprosy was the red heifer, that which would bring cleansing. Well, the meaning of these three unique terms has moved from the specific in verse 12 for the Day of Atonement to the general in verse 13. He is using bulls instead of calves because now he's not talking about the Day of Atonement, but he's talking about the entire sacrificial system. For there was to be a bull that was offered for the sins that occurred of an individual. No longer just the yearling calf, now a bull. And the red heifer, that sacrifice and that cleansing would be instituted whenever there was the touching of a dead body or whenever the incident of leprosy occurred. So as we understand this, we see that there is a unique distinction that it's brought forward. And it is taking the concept of the Old Testament purification beyond the Day of Atonement and considering again the entire sacrificial system. The term encompasses that entire Old Testament law or these terms, goats, bulls, and the ashes of a heifer. The verse goes on. If all these sprinkling those who have been defiled. The sprinkling again is the picture of the Old Testament sacrifice. Anytime there was a sacrifice, yes, there was the taking of the animal before the temple of God, before the tabernacle, and that animal would have its throat slit and it would be killed there and would eventually be sacrificed on the brazen altar, which was continually burning as, a, as it offered sacrifices for the sins of the people to God. But don't forget, all of that blood wasn't simply poured out. Some of it was captured, and it was sprinkled upon the one who was in sin. That is exactly what we see happening throughout this text. That's what the sprinkling is referencing here in the text. It is that which is sprinkling those who have been defiled. The, isn't it a paradox as we consider cleanliness in our day and age? That the way that cleanliness was brought forward in the Old Testament system is that you were sprinkled with blood or with the ashes of a dead animal? 
It's totally contrary to what we would think of cleansing, isn't it? That's exactly the, that's, that's the human sensibilities. It has never been right. No one has ever thought, well, I think I'm going to get clean, so I'm going to go take a bath in some blood. That never happened. Because it is against our human sensibilities. It's what God has placed in us. It is part of the Noahic covenant in Noah chapter 9. We know that the life is in the blood. It is meant to be a graphic picture that no one could ignore. Okay, you've had your sins, you brought your animal, we're going to kill the animal, and now I'm going to throw the blood on you. Guess how big a deal your sins are. They're huge. And I'm going to continue throwing blood on you because you continue to sin. It's amazing to understand this. And these that are defiled are the ones who are in sin who need cleansing. This last phrase, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, it means that the blood of these sacrifices did sanctify, did make holy. But notice it is only sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. This is the first contrast of purifications. This was, it was only an outward action of cleansing. It was an, only an exterior cleansing. It was only a superficial cleansing. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23 and verse 27, where he said in Matthew 23 and 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. This was only an exterior cleansing. This was only superficial. This was not a cleansing that could affect the heart. So as we consider verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, if all these are true, and the Bible tells us they are, and here we have the first contrast of purification, namely that of superficial and exterior cleansing, then that takes us to verse 14. And here is the second contrast of purifications. And the contrast begins, how much more? Our consideration of good to best is perfectly portrayed right here. How much more? The old covenant purification, it was good. It did sanctify. It did make holy, but only externally. It was good because it brought the worshiper to understand sin. I think when you had blood sprinkled on you, you'd recognize something's going on here. There, there's a big deal happening. So it did make the worshiper understand sin. It did bring the worshiper to an understanding of a holy God whose righteousness was offended with the sin. But the words, how much more, reveal the best. This is presented as a rhetorical question. How much more will the blood of Christ? And the answer is infinitely more. The precious blood of Jesus that which was, which was shed at Gethsemane as he prayed 
in great agony and cried out to the Lord and his capillaries burst in his skin such that his sweat became mixed with his blood and it dripped from his body. And so the shedding of the blood began. It is that which he shed at Gabbatha, the pavement in John 19, 13, where twice they changed him to the post and they ripped the flesh off his back with the cat of nine tails. As they put the crown of thorns upon his head and beat it into his head, such the blood is running down his face and his back removed from flesh and muscle and the blood shedding continued. And ultimately the blood that he shed at Calvary as the nails were driven through his wrists and his feet as he later yielded his spirit and the soldier pierced his side with the sword. How much more will the blood of Christ? It is simply the blood that is referenced here, but not just the blood. It is the whole sacrificial work of Christ, as Dr. MacArthur notes. It is the precious blood of Christ for which Judas received 30 pieces of silver in blood money in Matthew 27 and 6. For which the field of blood was purchased when he threw it back into the temple treasury and went and hung himself. It is the blood which Pilate washed his hands of saying, I am innocent of the blood of this man in Matthew 27 and 24. And which shockingly one verse later in Matthew 27 and 25, we hear the people crying out, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Can you imagine? As we look at the children in the room today, can you imagine condemning them with the blood of Christ? His blood be on us and on our children. It was the shed blood through which the Father was pleased to crush him in Isaiah 53.10. It is that of Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And those sins are passed over because of the blood. Just as the Passover occurred back in the Exodus, so also our sins are passed over because of the blood of Christ. The blood of Romans 5, 9, where Romans 5 and 9 says, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Oh, the precious blood of Jesus. It was the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself, as verse 14 further notes. Notice there is our key word, through. Through the eternal spirit. That is, through his Holy Spirit. Our word through explains the means or the mode, like the door by which one enters. It was the eternal spirit that was the means by which Christ offered his blood. This shows us, beloved, the incredible and intricate relationship of the Son and the Spirit through the death of the Savior, through the death of Christ. 
that it was the eternal spirit that was with him every step of the way, that there was no separation through and to the cross and to his death and that separation of his spirit from his body into heaven and the Holy Spirit accompanying that. Incredible to recognize the nuances of this word through and the power of God's spirit that is there. And notice in verse 14, Jesus offered himself. He wasn't gagged and bound in the shedding of his blood. He wasn't dragged, kicking and screaming because he didn't want to do this and that it was against his will. And yet, every animal sacrifice that was brought was brought involuntarily. And you might be thinking, well, well, it's a, it's a dumb animal. How are they going to know? Well, they would understand clearly because they would hear the bleating of the other sheep as they were crying out. And I'll tell you, and I, and I hope that you don't know, but if you have ever been there to experience an animal dying, that death scream that has brought forth, those other animals knew what was going on inside that curtain. And they were drug in involuntarily, but not our Lord. He offered himself. And he did so to God without blemish. The sacrificial lamb had to have no spot or blemish. 1 Peter 1.19 says, But with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He is the only one who could offer spotless and sinless, blameless blood. The only one who ever walked this earth and was without sin. Exactly as Hebrews 4.15 tells us. Hebrews 4 and 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus brought himself to God. He offered himself to God without blemish. And then verse 14 closes by completing the contrast of purifications. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? To cleanse the conscience from dead works. These are the works which are done in man's strength. And notice the conscience which would not be cleansed back in our former verses, now is fully cleansed. That was the problem with the previous sacrifice as verse 9 showed us. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered in the old system, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Now our consciences are cleansed from that, those dead works. These are the works which are done in man's strength and his effort apart from God. This was the works righteousness system that the Jews had set up. They had taken God's law and then they had blossomed all of that into 600 plus commands that you had to obey. And it was only as you 
litigiously and legalistically held to each and every command that you could be seen as righteous before God. It was not a faith-based system. It was not even a loved obedience system. It was simply a system of man's works. It's the works based on righteousness that the Catholic sacraments wrongly proclaim will bring one to salvation. That if you walk through the seven sacraments of the church all the way to last rites, then you will be allowed into heaven because you have done the work. Hogwash! Only by the faith and blood of Christ can anyone enter heaven. Beloved, we know that there is only one way and we can't earn it. There's only one salvation and it is through faith in Christ. For it's by grace that we have been saved, through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God. Why? So that no one will boast. Because we would boast. We would say, look at what I've done. Look, I've completed all 613 commands. That's why my tassels run clear down and on the ground. Look at all that I've done. I've, I've continued. I've never committed any mortal sins. And as soon as I have a venial sin, I run to the priest and I confess it to him. These will not cleanse. Only faith in Christ brings life. No one is good enough. If someone tells you, if your family member says, you know, yeah, I really don't go to church and, or I go once in a while, but really, I'm going to get to heaven because I'm just generally a good person. I'm just generally a good person. If a good person could get to heaven, Christ did not need to shed his blood. And God would not waste the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Not through dead works, but rather we're to serve the living God. These are the works which James 2 speaks about. These are the works done through the power of faith. It is the things that we do not because we can earn our way to God. We have no merit before God. But it is those that which we do in honor, which we do in love, which we do in obedience to him, in desire of exalting his church. Why do we go out? Why did I get, you know, a huge number of people to come out yesterday on a hot and thundery and somewhat rainy day, humid, muggy, to go walk around in the streets of Mobile for an hour and sometimes not have people talk to them, sometimes tell them that they're Catholic or some other church and they don't want their materials? Not because they're accomplishing some work. Because they love Christ. And they want to be obedient to his word. And we all want to be obedient to his word. Because it is the only way in which we are to live. This idea of achieving that which God has called us to is exactly what we've been referencing in our past messages. Not achieving something on our own. We cannot but so that we would show the love of God, so that we would reflect the gift of the blood of Christ. Because it is for the cleansing of the conscious that Christ's blood was shed. Exactly what the old covenant could not do, as we saw in verse 9. It could never make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Because again, there was that immediate knowledge that sin is building again. Beloved, if you are here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, I am grateful to say that your sin is not building again. Jesus has paid the price. 
His blood has covered it once for all. It is done. It is finished. You are seen as righteous at the foot of the cross. But yet we must continue to work out our sanctification. We must continue to live in obedience to God's word. We must continue to grow in holiness and remove ourselves from sin. These are the mechanisms which reflect a right understanding of the shed blood of Christ. And that is why his blood was shed. But we understand now that no more, now conscience can be cleansed. Now we can be free of that sin. Always understanding it yet lies in our flesh and we must always battle it. But in God's mind we are seen now in the righteousness of Christ. It is for this cleansing of the conscience that Christ's blood was shed. It's exactly what the old covenant could not do in verse 9. It is exactly what the blood of bulls and calves and goats could never do. It could never make the worshiper perfect in conscience. But notice the choice that is set up in the contrast of verses 13 and 14. Verse 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience? Do you see that? We have to look a little carefully at the verses to see it. Because really, the verse, verse 14 is broken up. It starts, how much more will the blood of Christ? And then it explains Christ's work. And then it picks up again with the word cleanse. So really, we could just read it as, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience it's a future action how much more will the blood of christ cleanse your conscience you see as it was presented to these jewish new testament church members they were called to recognize they had a choice that they had to make they had to leave behind that old covenant system how much more will the blood of christ then the text tells us about Jesus' path and says, how much more will it cleanse? How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience versus the blood of goats and calves? You see, there had to be a decision made. They had to recognize the choice of the good of the Old Testament system versus the best of the blood of Christ. And that choice was made by abandoning the good, abandoning the Old Testament system, abandoning the Old Covenant and the tabernacle worship, abandoning the earthly high priesthood. But how about for us, beloved? We aren't holding to the Old Covenant system. But what other things of this life are we holding on to instead of abandoning the best for Christ? How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse us if we let go of these earthly elements and fully devote and serve Him? To have our consciences cleansed from dead works. The works of this earth that have no value. It doesn't matter how big a bank account we amass. There are no hearses behind U-Hauls. We're not taking it with us. 
doesn't matter how nice a mountain bike I might have. I'm not going to be riding it in heaven. We have to abandon all of this for Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse us if we let go of these earthly pursuits? Is your pursuit money? Is your pursuit pleasure? Is your pursuit earthly relationships? None of these are bad. No, in fact, they are good. They are the things God has created so that we could partake of them. But how are they keeping us from the best, which is Christ? What does this look like? It looks like 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Renounce the things hidden because of shame. There can be no rooms in our house for which Christ is not granted full access and for which he can cleanse our sins. He must have full access to our minds. And the thoughts which come into our minds, we must immediately take captive to the obedience of Christ. Not walking in the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness. Not adulterating the word of God saying, oh yes, I go to church on Sunday, but on Monday I'm going to take you for all that you're worth. We used to giggle that that was the condition of the Mormons back in Idaho. You know, you could tell the Mormons, they were always in church on Sunday, and Monday they were going to take you for everything you had. It looks like Hebrews 10.22, where our author writes in Hebrews 10 and 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what God wants for us. He wants our consciences cleansed. He wants us washed with the pure water of the gospel of Christ. Beloved, if these are true of you, you will have evident abandoning of the good and choosing the best, which is having your conscience cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ.